0: you know uh, this reminds me so much of church planting in Brentwood we were meeting in a gymnasium and every week there was some technical difficulty or other uh you know like alarm bells going off right in the middle of things having to vacate the premises and (laughs) i think what it was really good for me was it taught me not to be high strung about uh when these things happen um I was very much high-strung by nature. It's funny, this is not in my sermon notes, but this is all the way today went is reminding me. So if I had uh, been your pastor uh, 20 years ago, I would have been uh, probably sinfully frustrated and high-strung by this point of the service. Uh, But uh, praise the Lord. Uh, It's not about perfection. Uh, The gospel is not about our perfection, is it? The reality is we are not perfect, but we have a Savior who is, and... And our acceptance and our identity is definitely not in how great our uh, service is packaged and put together. It's what we're going to study now, which is the greatness of Jesus and this gift we have in Him. So, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, I want to read this for you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here we're going to look at new life in Christ. And this is one of those passages that as a pastor I might be tempted to skip because it's not very flattering of humanity. Nobody really wants to come and hear that they're a terrible person. No one wants to come and hear that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, that they walked according to the prince of the power of the air who's at work in the sons of disobedience. It's one of the good things about preaching verse by verse through the Bible is it forces us to cover all of the Scriptures and see what God has to say. I think another temptation is I've heard some preachers who would just want to focus on the dead part, but we want to cover the whole paragraph. The dead part, the, the rebellious part, is not the main point. It's the That's where you were before Jesus, but the main point is God being rich in mercy made you alive. And you're His workmanship. And so we're going to be looking at new life in Christ. And Paul is not, again, trying to tell us simply how bad we are, but to tell us how good God the Father is in saving us. That's Paul's whole point here in giving us this new life in Christ. After all, in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, the Father is summing up all things in Jesus. He's making Jesus the main point of all of human history, of time and space, everywhere. Jesus is to be the main attraction. And so when we come to chapter 2, even in our sinfulness, we're not the main attraction. It's God's mercy and kindness in Jesus. And chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 are talking about individual reconciliation with the Father. That is how you and I are made right with God. How can we be in the presence of a holy God? And we're going to see next time, verses 11 to 22 are talking about corporate reconciliation. That is, in the body of Jesus, in the body of Christ, the church. We are all being reconciled to one another and to Him. We're all one in Jesus. And so we have to remember, Paul wrote this little letter to be read at one time in the church. Now we're going to break it up into 18 messages. But we don't want to forget the overall big picture of what he's trying to talk about. The Ephesian church had experienced the gospel. They had experienced the resurrection power of Jesus on their behalf. And they saw what a change Jesus made. And now Paul is giving them theology to to ground what happened. He's saying, this is what the Father is doing to put His Son on center stage. To put Jesus' name in lights on the marquee. We were in New York uh, this past year for our anniversary. First time I'd ever been to New York City. And it's quite an experience to go down there to... Times Square and to see the marquees. And then we caught a Broadway show because that's what you do when you're in New York. And you see these marquees and the the show is in lights. And my understanding is it used to be actors' names were in lights and headlining. And isn't it a temptation of our world that we want to put our name in lights? I mean, after all, it's almost like we're the main character of the movie of our life playing. And if I could just be successful or have a, have a legacy or put my name in lights, but what we see in this passage before us is when we try to put our name in lights, we make a mess of things. There's no real greatness in that. Even if it's a temporary greatness by this world's standards, it doesn't have eternal value. But when we put Jesus' name in lights, when we're about the same thing that the Father's about, which is making much of Jesus, things fall right into place. We're going to see that. So, we become the showcase, not the headliner, but we become as the church the stage by which Jesus is seen in our community, in our families, at work, in all our relationships. And this is what the Father is doing. The glory of God manifests in us. That's what we're going to see in verse 10 where His workmanship. Uh, I'll get there. First, verses 1 to 3, God's sovereignty in our sinful state. God's sovereignty in our sinful state. I lost my my outline turner. Hit the right arrow on the keyboard. I think it's all on one page, so there you go. You won't have to do any more, Jack. You're good. Uh, Excellent. Notice it says, chapter 2, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked and we used to be this way Um, verse three we lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of our body but now verse four God being rich in mercy we were dead verse five but we've been made alive together with Christ Paul's building on chapter one where he used 14 times in the first uh, paragraph this idea of being in Jesus Being united to Jesus, being in the Beloved One, being in Christ. So we are so much in Jesus, according to Paul here, that Jesus' destiny becomes our destiny. We've been taken off the path of destruction and put onto the path of life. And so Paul starts with basically telling them, remember. Remember where you were before Jesus changed your life. Verse 2. You once walked according to the course of this world. You once followed the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, Notice he says, uh, verse 2, that we were sons of disobedience. And that idea of sons is we were characterized. Just like um, we are now sons of God. Daughters of God were characterized by being in the family of God. But when we were sons of disobedience, it was like disobedience gave birth to us. And that's what we were characterized by. And that's where he's going, of course, is verse 10. But now we are his workmanship. This is what we were apart from Jesus. But now in Jesus, we're his workmanship. This is the bookend. And... It's a summary of what God has done in Jesus. We once walked in death. Now we can have newness of life in Jesus. And I'll tell you what, this is great hope, isn't it? All you have to do is live life a little while and you realize, man, I make a mess of things. I have a lot of regrets. I have a lot of shame. I don't know what I'm doing. But it can be tempting to think there's no hope. I'm stuck in a rut and this is my lot in life. But the good news of the gospel, what Paul is outlining here is that there is great hope. We already know what it's like to walk in misery of sorrow, but now there's this hope that we can walk in joy. And this is what Paul is getting at. He's The Father has saved us by grace for the purpose of, verse 10, walking in good works, which He prepared beforehand. I know I'm kind of leaning in on this heavy, but I want you to get this, because it's not about a theology of the worm where you just inwardly navel-gaze and think about how bad you are. That's not Paul's point here. In fact, I've often told you, the Gospel says, cheer up, you're worse than you think. But God in Christ loves you more than you could possibly imagine. That's Paul's point here. This is what we were. Oh, and we can remember that. But this is not what we are in Jesus. And that's where Paul's headed. But looking at this state, Scripture says man's problem is that he is dead, verse 1. Dead. And, re- and what does that mean? It doesn't mean physically dead. We're, you know, those who are not Christians are alive physically, but it means to be spiritually dead. That is, no relationship with God, there is no living relationship. Another word that Paul uses in the book of Colossians is we're alienated from God. We're we're estranged from God. You ever had a relationship where you messed it up and it's ruined? And you feel like there's no getting that relationship back, and you used to be friends, but now there's estrangement, alienation. This was our condition. And Paul is not choosing favorites, is he? He says, verse 1, all of you. He says, verse 3, all of us (laughs) he includes everybody like the rest of mankind lest you think he's just talking about the ephesian church he says that all of mankind is estranged from god and it's not very flattering in fact it can be insulting it can insult our pride because we think i'm a pretty good person i've done pretty well i haven't committed any of the major crimes i i haven't committed felonies i I haven't murdered anybody, Uh, uh, you know, yeah, I've made mistakes here and there, but I'm a good person. Paul here says, no, that's not what, that's not what God teaches, teaches that apart from the grace of God, we deserve judgment and wrath. In fact, verse 12, a little bit farther, he tells the Ephesians to remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope and without God. Are you there this morning? Is that how you feel? I don't have any hope. I don't know what it means to have God in my life. This, you need to pay attention. God has you here for a reason, a divine appointment to hear this reality that there is good news for you, there is hope. The fundamental bottom line, even in our sinfulness, is not merely that we're ignorant. In fact, turn over to chapter 4, verse 18. Look at it. Paul's continuing this same thought from chapter 2, and I want you to see this in chapter 4. He's telling them to stop walking, verse 17, as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then he says, verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. Well, Paul, you must just, they need more education. Must be, they just don't understand. They need to know more. No. He goes on to say they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. See, Paul, it's ignorance. Just education's the solution. No, why are they ignorant? It's a willful ignorance due to the hardness of heart. It's a willful ignorance that says, God, I don't want you to be in my life. I want to be the boss of my life. I don't want you to be the boss of my life. It's pretty incredible, isn't it, to think about? And if, if you're not a Christian, you might think, well, I don't have a problem with God. He can do His thing, I can do my thing. It, 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 I don't even think much about Him. And at first glance, that seems reasonable, except for the fact that He made you. And He has rights over you. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so... To be ignorant of God in a willful ignorance due to the hardness of heart, that's uh, not flattering. And he goes on to say back in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that it's not only ourselves that are at odds against God, but the kingdom we're in is at odds against God we are part of the domain of the prince of the power of the air the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience and we could turn over to first john and see the enemies of 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 the church are the world the flesh and the devil and i and and we know that this is a reference to satan this prince of the power of the air and what a what a characterization it's not very flattering is it we're in the dom- if we're not a believer in Jesus, we're in the kingdom of Satan, doing his will, characterized by disobedience. And that disobedience, to be clear, takes on a lot of different shapes. Sometimes it is just a life of destruction, of addictions, but sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's success. Sometimes it's self-sufficiency. I'm the king of my own domain. these compelling influences the world the flesh and the devil the prince of the power of the air is what influence us to live our lives apart from jesus in fact he's going to say in chapter 6 verse 10 to put on the armor of god and stand against the schemes of the devil and apart from jesus we can't even stand against the devil we're in his kingdom before we were christians we didn't battle him we followed him and did what he wanted characterized by it it's not flattering living in the passions of our flesh it says in verse 3 carrying out the desires of the body and the mind martin luther wrote a book during the reformation called the bondage of the will and in it he was correcting some misconceptions about what it means to be in this state it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It doesn't mean that we commit every evil at every opportunity that we can. What it means is every part of our being is corrupted by sin. And in particular, the will. And Luther is brilliant in the bondage of the will. I would commend you to read it. It's a little bit of a challenge, but I commend you to read it. But what he argues is, Basically, we always do what we want, and so what God needed to do was change our nature so that we wanted to follow God and be in the kingdom, because when we're not in the kingdom, we do what we want, which is being characterized as sons of disobedience. Our nature prior to Jesus was to follow and choose sin Christ was ugly to us God had to change our nature this is what Jesus said you have to be born again or you can't even see the kingdom of God in John 3 this doctrine of regeneration but when that happens beloved think what happens is Christ is now beautiful to us he's no longer ugly to us he's no longer a curse word he's our savior he's lovely he's excellent Praise God, He performs resurrections like Lazarus. He's resurrected us in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon on this passage says, My hope lives not because I'm a sinner, but because I'm a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I'm holy, but that being unholy, He's my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is and what He's done and what He's now doing in me and for me. Amen. This is the good news. The Father worked when we were dead to make us alive. That's what we're heading into now. God's love and power in our salvation. The rest of the passage, verses 4-10. to But God, being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. This is the burden of the passage. This is the burden of the sermon. We were objects of wrath, but God had mercy. We were missing something in life. We were missing life itself, life as God intended it to be, but this is what's provided in Jesus. We were dead. God made us alive. We were in bondage. God has freed us from that bondage and exalted us alongside the Lord Jesus in the heavenly realms. Paul's going to say that here in this chapter. Why did God do it? Why? Well, it's rooted in three things here in this passage. First, verse 4, His rich mercy. Why did God do it? Because He's rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Because of who I am, because of what I've done, God should not love me. That's a fact. And when we think of the justice and righteousness of God, if I have offended a person... If you have offended a person the way you've offended God, he or she should not love you. Have you ever ruined a relationship and done it? I have. But on the basis of His holiness and His character, God sent His Son to the cross because He's rich in mercy and wants to show us, give us what we don't deserve, which is His mercy. Unmerited favor. Rich, abounding, without measure. Unlimited mercy has been poured out. This is why we preach the gospel. It's why it's good news. In the ages to come, he's going to say here, verse 7, that he's going to keep making known to us the kindness of his mercy in Christ Jesus. So you and I are never going to stop learning about how merciful the Father is in Jesus. That is overwhelmingly good news. So that's the first motive, His rich mercy. The second motive, His great love. Look at that. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Do you know that God loves you with a great love, child of God? Do you know that? Deep down in your bones, at the deepest part of who you are, God loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much to tell you honestly what's true about you in verses 1-3, to but He also loves you so much He demonstrates it by giving His Son and pouring out His Spirit. In fact, in Romans 5-5, the Holy Spirit's the one that sheds the Father's love abroad in our hearts. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So, being made alive, verse 5, Together with Christ, this doctrine of regeneration is the process by which the Holy Spirit implants new life in us and makes us alive. There's a new power at work in our lives. In fact, the main verb and subject of the sentence is in verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy, that's not a main sentence, that's just a comment, a clause. Because of the great love with which He loved us is still a clause even when we were dead in our trespasses, is still a clause, not the main verb. What's the main verb? But God made us alive together with Christ. That's the main sentence. You could take the rest out. That's the main thought. What an incredible thought. And I'm sure you've heard a sermon on this passage that this but God transition is the best news we could ever hear. I need to hear it today. I don't know how your week went. Mine wasn't perfect. I sinned. I need to hear that God is rich in mercy and He's great in love. And what He did in His great love was He made me alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. So the whole point of Paul's message should be the point of our message. Here, here's what Paul is saying. We have victory and security and privilege and rejoicing and accomplishment in Jesus Christ. That means our lives have purpose and meaning and will never be put to shame. And as we face sin and the sorrow of sickness and temptations, we can go to this verse and say, praise God, I'm alive in Christ. I'm no longer the person I once was. I am now god's workmanship and i don't want to steal my own thunder i keep turning away from wanting to just jump on verse 10. we're going to see it in a moment but we can say father i want to worship you with my life and serve you with everything that i have you're rich in mercy and you're great in love but that's not all verses 6 to 10 we see his immeasurable grace His immeasurable grace. This is sovereign grace. This is amazing grace, like we sang. This grace that He's going to lavish on us for all eternity. Verse 7, "...so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." We are not going to stop learning about the cross for all eternity. And what we learn about the cross... Isn't it interesting what Paul chose to say? He chose to say we're learning about grace. We're learning about kindness. We're learning about the fact that this grace is infinite and immeasurable. It goes beyond what you could ever think or imagine. And isn't it a temptation in our lives to think that this grace is, has a limit? I can out-sin the grace of God. I can come to a point where maybe this week I just sinned too much and that's it. It's not enough anymore. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying here that you cannot measure this grace. In fact, for all eternity, you're going to grow in your knowledge of this grace. It's shown in His kindness towards us in Christ in verse 7. And by the way, kindness, isn't that a wonderful attribute? Sometimes it's mistaken for weakness. Sometimes people's kindness is mistaken for weakness. In God's case, because God hasn't judged the world yet, people think He's weak and never will. But we must not mistake His kindness for weakness. But it's in Christ Jesus. Now, He's going to say, He's going to return to this idea of great love and immeasurable grace in chapter 3. And I know you know this prayer well, but the second prayer Paul returns to in chapter 3, he says, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father for this reason, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you would be filled with all the fullness of God? This is at the heart of all of chapter 1 through 3. Paul's saying, I'm just going to meditate on how rich the Father's mercy is how great his love is how immeasurable his grace is towards us so that you would truly know it and believe it because guess what you're going to have spiritual warfare you're living in this world in chapters four to six he outlines this is the reality that we're in but by the time we get to chapter six where he says hey we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces in the heavenly places he's given us the foundation to stand firm to hold the line, to rest in Jesus and remember everything that's true in Him. So it's also seen in new life. Verses 8-10. to By grace you've been saved. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship. Verse 8, it's a gift. It's a gift we who believe... We who understand the love of God in Christ, we who see this immeasurable grace, it should move our hearts to love others who need grace, who need mercy. And I'll be honest, the temptation is to only love others who we don't perceive need grace or mercy. They have it all together. They'd be a good friend. They'd be a good asset. They'd be a good part of my life. But here, the implication of what he's going to get to in verse 10 about good works is that oh, we're to reflect our Father in heaven, which means we need to be rich in mercy. We need to be great in love. We need to be full of grace. We can't be immeasurable in our grace because we're limited beings, but we need to be people characterized by mercy and love and grace because it's been shown to us. And notice, he's clear that this kind of working in our lives is not what saves us. It's almost like he knows, he anticipates. Oh, you're going to be tempted to think you're saved by works, verse 9. So it's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not your own doing, verse 8. It's the gift of God. You've been saved by grace through faith. Now faith, what is faith? Faith is this idea of trusting, of receiving. Faith simply requires saying like, Thomas, my Lord and my God, I believe who You are, Jesus. You're the one who died for my sins. You were buried and You rose again. This, our dependency upon Jesus is, is not not based upon our performance it's not our right actions it's not even our right doctrine it's clinging to him by faith trusting that he is the savior so salvation in this passage well in in broader passages is a liberation from slavery we see that in colossians 1 it's a rescue from condemnation uh, we see that here, it's a resurrection from the dead, John 3. Verse 10 here, it is a new creation, a, a being born again for a new purpose and a new work. Here he says we are his workmanship, his poema in the Greek, his handiwork, his work of art. His. It's incredible to think about, when you look at this picture of I know God is spirit. He doesn't have an arm. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have fingers. But when you go to the Old Testament and you see the metaphors of God's working salvation, do you know, for example, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies are His handiwork, His finger play. I think of those pictures that my kids would draw in kindergarten with the finger paints and we'd put it up on the fridge because we were so proud. And Now we have them in boxes in the garage because they're meaningful to us and we'll die with them and then our kids will throw them out after we're dead because they weren't meaningful to them. It's finger play. But in Isaiah, when God brings salvation, you know what it says He does? He bears His right arm. He rolls up His sleeves. He gets in the mix of salvation. What a picture of, of God working. Now we know God is omnipotent. He doesn't need to roll up His sleeves. That is not so that we understand how much work it was. It's to understand the heart of God. That He's willing to go to whatever length it takes to do this work. Here now it says we are His poema, His handiwork, His work of art. He created the heavens and the earth, but when He created us, we were created in His image. And when we're born again in Jesus, we're recreated anew. Paul tells us we're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are these good works? Well, two realities. One, the Father prepared them beforehand, which means He knew the end from the beginning, so when He saved us, He had a plan, not only for our salvation, but for how He was going to use us. What What an amazing thought that means if you're sitting in this room and you're not at home in heaven with jesus god is not done with you yet he has good works prepared for you what an incredible thought i can't tell you how many times i've sat at the bedside of someone who was a shut-in who had become invalid who thought, I don't have any more things to offer the church. I don't have any more good works to do. I'm laying in a bed and I can't do anything. But they could pray, and they did pray. And I saw answers to those prayers. And I would go tell them, the Lord's answered your prayer. You had a good work to do. You've encouraged the saints who've come. I, I, so many times I've gone to a bedside of someone dying, meaning and hoping to encourage them, and I came away more encouraged probably than them because they were reminding me of what's true in Jesus and their hope in heaven, and they're going to see Him soon. Then he says it's for a purpose that we would walk in them, that we should walk in them. That There's no doubt about this, that He's prepared these good works, that we would just walk right in them and do them. So we're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works for the purpose of doing good works. And isn't that a great comfort? Don't we want to be useful? Don't we want to be used? There's something very frustrating about feeling useless. I was unemployed at the beginning of COVID for the first time in my entire life. So I was very blessed to be consistent with work. I was out of work for four months at the beginning of COVID. And I didn't handle that very well, did I? And I remember walking around these streets feeling completely useless. I didn't have a ministry. I wasn't pastoring at the time. I didn't have a job. I was walking around. I mean, I spent all the time I could applying for jobs, but there weren't a lot to be had. And then we were, I realized, Jesus' words, it's more blessed to give than to receive, are so true. That when we give, when we pour into others, when we're useful, we are far more happier. That's what the word blessed means. It means happy. We're happier when we give than when we receive. Why is that? Well, because we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. To walk in them. We were created in the image of God who is a giving, generous God. God is the unceasing giver and we're created in His image and so no wonder when we serve and give, we're far happier than when we receive. And So take heart. I don't know where you're at in your life right now. What phase of life, what circumstances, but you might feel like you're still in verses one to three, believer, that you're under God's judgment because you're without hope and without God, and that is not a reality if you've believed upon Jesus. You are a new creation, you're his workmanship, you've been created for good works. The Father has lavished his great mercy and rich love and immeasurable grace upon you. Remember that why paul in romans 11 says oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments to him from him and through him and to him be all things we'll never fully understand or explain it completely in fact paul's point here in chapter two is not theological debate is it oh we could turn it into a theological debate we can talk about you know, the five points of Calvinism or whatever we talk about. But that's not the point here. The point is to encourage you as the church that you were once dead, but now you're alive and you were created as a new creation in Jesus for the purpose of good works to walk in Him. And so take hope. Though you were dead, now you're alive. Though you were in bondage, you've been set free and exalted. Though you walked according to the ways of this world, now you walk according to the good works the Father prepared beforehand in Jesus. This is what we have in Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. What a glorious message. What a hope. This encourages my heart. And if I'm honest, I I don't always believe it. And so, by Your Spirit, increase my faith. Help my unbelief. Remind me what's true in Jesus. Remind my brothers and sisters who they are in Christ. If someone here doesn't know You, would You open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus? May they give their life to Him. Put faith in Him. Turn from their own sins. Repent of them and follow Jesus. As we come to the table now, Father, would You... May it be a sweet time of remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen.